Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host. Sam Ashurst. I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a podcast person. And I have selected for us this fortnight The Lighthouse, though I feel a bit bad claiming it as my own choice because I know that Dan absolutely loves this film too. We were both just as excited as each other when this was announced by Arrow. So I'm really glad that we finally got to it. I absolutely love this film, spoiler alert. So really excited to dig into it. But before we do that, Dan, what is the plot of The Lighthouse? A man, grizzled, old. (laughs) Another man, curiously handsome. (laughs) Forced into close proximity by their job. Tending the lighthouse on a desolate island for one month. And then, after one month, they get to leave. They definitely get to leave after a month. Oh, Don't yeah. worry. Yeah, it's because be not fine. leaving after a month would be just awful. <laughs> <laughs> I watched this with Shay and... <laughs> When they were talking about leaving, I said, oh, Shay, it's really good that they get to leave tomorrow, isn't it? God. (laughs) Had Shay not seen it yet? Shay hadn't seen it. So it really, really does take a slight turn when they aren't able to leave. Again, spoiler alert. It was an absolute joy watching it with her because she connected to it as much as we did. The cinematography and the lighting in particular was just so exciting to her. Gorgeous. It just, this movie looks so, so stunning every single frame it's a cliche to say that every single frame could be hung on a wall but it's shot in that way like it looks like stage photography at certain points but at other points the the lighting and the composition is used very cleverly to pull you into the world and to pull you into the pov of the characters dan how did you first see it and what was your reaction the first time you watched the lighthouse i didn't get a chance to see it at the cinema so i watched it streaming the first time and i really enjoyed it like i just really enjoyed it i thought it was fantastic the 4k i think between the like you know having it on physical media mm-hmm. at that resolution yeah We've obviously, you know, I watched it on the projector last time as well, but having it on a big screen, big-ish screen, it's such a gorgeous film, and it really, it's it's one of those ones that that genuinely merits that kind of resolution. Yes. Because a lot of old tut is being put out on 4K these days, and I'm, I'm here for it. Like, it's fun. That's nice to, to watch <laughs> yeah. that stuff at that resolution. But this is a film that really deserves it. It's absolutely beautiful. You say it has those sort of, like, almost still photograph feelings. That, that shot quite early on where yes. Defoe and Patterson are watching the ship leave after yeah. it drops them off, and it, it very much feels like... A photograph that you would see of two fishermen that was taken at the time that the yep. movie is set, turn of the century, just titled like wikis, like the, you know it, it. It feels like it could have been shot then. It feels like yeah. it could have been from that period, and it's oh, it's so beautiful. It's almost like an early mic drop moment. Like that's exactly the shot that I was thinking of when I said that. So I'm I'm, I'm glad you identified that. It feels like very much that there was a reference photo in the lookbook that they've decided to recreate and they recreate it beautifully. Like talk about world building and and creating. It's like a time travel machine. Like it feels both like a film that was made about that period, but also it's like a lost film that is made from that period that we've just discovered including all of the horror elements it deals with feel very much of the time 
the performances. Yeah, it's just very, very thrilling and exciting. This was the second time I watched it. I actually did watch it on the big screen the first time out. Um, I was lucky enough to see a press screening at the London Film Festival because I was interviewing Eggers about it. And it's one of those cinematic experiences where I can remember exactly where I was sitting, even though obviously it wasn't released that long ago. But you and I see so many films in the cinema, like sometimes they blur into one. But this is such a, a, a clear, clear memory. I remember exactly where I was sitting, how I felt moment to moment. And just the experience of being enveloped in the sound design and the music and feeling like I'd been transported back in time. Absolutely wonderful experience. And it didn't lose any of its power watching it at home, partly because, as you say, this UHD, this 4K is mind-blowing. A real jolt for the film. It's just gorgeous. Just stunning, stunning, stunning transfer. I can't say enough good things about this film. On a second watch as well, the fact that I could have more of a distance from the plot like wondering what's going to happen next and I could really luxuriate both in terms of the style and the performances like I was impressed with Willem Dafoe the first time around but this time I mean he is one of our all-time great actors relatively underrated I'd say he doesn't have the reputation of a De Niro or Pacino But for me, he's up there with the best of them, for sure. He's better than both of those men. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, and and part of it comes from his theatre background, which is something that Eggers shares with him. I think Eggers probably connected more with Defoe than Pattinson. And if this film does have a weakness that I identified on a second watch, I didn't buy into Pattinson as much second time around for some reason. He felt a tiny bit out of his depth. But then when you're acting opposite someone like Defoe, it must be so intimidating and you must be really fighting tooth and nail to keep up with what he's doing. Um, how did you feel about Pattinson's performance? I thought he was really solid, you know. He's okay. he's a quiet man with a, with a little bit of a secret. He's I, I think he's very good at being guarded at the beginning. Uh, Mm. And I think he's very good at letting things fall apart for himself as the film progresses, you know. Mm. He's holding so much in. He's being very restrained. He's not drinking because it's against the rules. You know, he's very much following the rules. Um, And then the outside world breaks the rules in that his time doesn't finish when it should. Right. And, And that's when things start to break down for him. And I think that he does such a good job of portraying someone losing their grip because they knew all they had to do was wait until then and then it's over and then they've done their thing you know he knows that this is a good way to make that money quick it's it's not going to be easy but at least it's finite and then suddenly it's not finite anymore suddenly he doesn't even know how long they've been there certainly on the second viewing i'm not going to go into spoilers as always but it took on much more of a shining feel for me on this watch um yeah i can see that i think there's a kind of direct reference someone runs with an axe it really put me in mind of jack nicholson there's some ways they messed with perception here that that felt very very kubrickian the film was compared to kind of bergman and tarkovsky uh, when it first came out by critics at Cannes. and actually i've got a really nice quote from eggers about that which maybe i'll put into extra features or maybe i'll just read it out if i can't find the sound file it's really really old-fashioned and modern at the same time and it does have that art house 
kind of style. But as with Kubrick, there's a real, real dark humour at the heart of the film that, that can be overlooked. Um, how did it make you feel in terms of film history as a whole? I mean, it's an incredibly accomplished picture. The Bergman thing is funny because I, at one point, I popped the subtitles on just to make sure I wasn't missing anything. I think just because some of the nomenclature that the Defoe is using is quite <laughs> alien. Yeah. So it's, if you don't completely understand what he's saying it's very difficult to fill in the gaps in the way that you might with normal dialogue and the second it had those stark white subtitles on that beautiful black and white image it felt yeah. like i was watching a bergman film yeah <laughs> it really did yeah there's there's no shame in having subs on this one people i also turned the subs on as well and i double checked with shay because it does actually change the lighting a little bit if that makes sense because the subs are so bright yeah. on on the 4k like it does kind of contrast with the darks but she loves subtitles too. I, I support putting subtitles on for every movie, every TV show. It adds actually a lot to the enjoyment of the writing of, of this stuff. And especially if you're a, a, a wannabe film writer, if you're not turning the subs on, what you're doing, it will help you so much. But yeah, ag again, Shay, within the first few frames, I think it's when they're, they're walking up towards the lighthouse. She was like, oh my God, this is a Bergman movie. And so I am going to read out um, a little bit from this big interview that I did with Eggers because his answers are kind of hilarious in a good way, in a deliberate way. Okay, so I said, uh, in the Q&A at the Cannes screening, someone compared the film to Bergman and Tarkovsky, and you made a joke saying they'd think it was dumb. I know it was a joke, but why would you say that? This isn't a dumb film. It's poetic cinema in the tradition of the European stuff. Egger said, I think Bergman would get behind it. I do, I do. I think that he would get that my flagrant choices, my juvenile choices, my grotesque, scatological, over-the-top, ham-fisted, deliberately stupid choices had intention behind them. And I said, it's a funny film. I wasn't expecting that. And Eggers says, if he liked the movie, there's a chance he'd get behind it. Tarkovsky, it's just not for him. Come on, you know it's not for him. I said, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. It has elements of the poetic that he'd love. Uh, he was obsessed with water. But the fart jokes, maybe not so much. And Eggers says, and this is my favourite answer of the lot. He was part of the reason I wanted this to be funny. This is going to make me sound like a real schmuck. But I was reading Dostoevsky and I was thinking, Andre Tarkovsky, learn from your boy. I don't think the witch works unless it takes itself so seriously. I feel like it needed to be like that. And I'm not saying Michael Haneke isn't a good filmmaker because he makes humorless films, because he's a great filmmaker. But something about the witch, maybe because it's a first feature, the self-seriousness almost felt juvenile also. I felt that if we're going to explore misery again, we need to be able to laugh at it. And so the idea is that you get your ticket, you see the opening sequence and think, oh no, I'm in a Hungarian art house movie and I can't get out. And then Defoe farts and we see that there might be some light at the end of the tunnel. I love Eggers, one of my favourite ever interviewees. He's wonderful on this disc. There's a brilliant, brilliant audio commentary. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Really great. And I also loved the making of documentary that's feature length on this disc as well. This is a, a set that Criterion would be proud of. One of my favourite ever, ever Arrow releases. You agreed with me on the commentary. What were some of your highlights from that commentary? Um, to be honest, what was on the commentary and what was in those two astonishing making ofs? Uh, has sort of blurred together. Right. Uh, so I don't remember if it's from the commentary or if it's from 
the the longer of the two making ofs mm. but they uh, there's quite a bit of talk about how they found the balance in the music uh, and particularly Corvin's work with the apprehension engine which I hadn't realized was used in this I hadn't realized that it was that Corvin was the inventor of it and it's something I've been like lightly fascinated by lightly obsessed with um, since I first saw a little like YouTube documentary about it they talked about how uh, originally the entire soundtrack was that <laughs> the entire wow. soundtrack was just that foreboding apprehension yeah. engine like horror yeah. soundscape and that they had to f- they had to find the balance with a more traditional score so that it kept its punch so that it didn't wear out stay its welcome and i thought that was really interesting that, like one of the things that it feels very present all the way through is that eggers is very aware of overstepping his own choices mm. um mm-hmm. You know, whether it's that, whether it's the seriousness, you know, all of these things. It, there's a, he, he also talks about how there was loads of extra dialogue for Defoe in the script and that he cut a lot of it and then him and Defoe worked through and cut a lot of dialogue, out, like a lot of uh, lines out as well. And, and while I'd love to read those, it's really interesting how he seems very staid, very understanding of, of how much is required and how much would be too much for all of these different aspects. And I feel like he's, yeah, he's, he's got a magical, um, a magical recipe on this one. One of the things that stood out to me in the uh, making of was how hard he is on himself, which is a, a great thing for an artist to, to be, because he was basically talking about how he feels about The Witch and how he feels about The Northman. And The Lighthouse is the only one of his films that he could rewatch. Part of that is because yeah. he sees them so many times when he's making them, but this was the closest thing to the vision that he had for the film actually ending up on the screen. Um, Both The Witch and The Northman were compromised for different reasons. This is a film that I'm going to watch over and over again. Shay feels the same way. We both have 100 watch films from our childhood, stuff like Batman, things that we watched over and over again. And Shay said about The Lighthouse that this feels like a, a 100 watch film one that you can just revisit and revisit and revisit and just get so much more from each time. It's a really, really, really special film and an absolute essential purchase if you're uh, a cineast and you don't have this in your collection. Arrow have done such an incredible job with this release. I'm in awe of what they've done with this movie. Dan, do you have any final thoughts on The Lighthouse before we move on to recommendations based on the film? I loved it. It was slightly more brutal in a couple of places than I'd remembered. It's pleasingly scatological uh, without going too far. That is very much the <laughs> the thing to... The, the through line for my feelings about this film. It, it measures everything right. I cannot wait for Egger's next film, which is going to be Nosferatu. If it's done anywhere close to the style of this film, then it's going to be another masterpiece. From, I think, my favourite modern director of his generation. Like He's often put in the same kind of group as Ari Aster and the Safdie brothers, but um, I'm way more excited by a new Eggers movie than I am by anything from those guys. Um, yeah, I just, agree. It's, superb superb director so all right let's move on to recommendations based on the movie there's one i think that we might have a crossover with here but i'm going to take a risk and say dan go first what would you like to pair with this film first and see how foreboding you feel this uh, intro is uh it's from 1995 oh thank god we're good movie we're good uh it's dead band by jim nice Jeremy. yes absolutely 
This immediately felt like these two could be double-billed. Dead Man is, just as this contains Patterson, contains another beautiful man in Johnny Depp, who is again travelling to an unknown uh, place in a historical time. In this instance, he is travelling to the town at the end of the railway line in the Old West, and he meets, uh, it's a much larger cast, a plethora of peculiar characters in this strange, dreamlike black and white movie again with an incredibly avant-garde soundtrack i i love dead man and i need to go and rewatch it now that uh, i've been thinking about it while <laughs> making notes for this another another incredible high contrast beautifully shot black and white movie probably my favorite jeremish picture and that's hard because yeah. i love jeremish i love that film great recommendation i should actually say now it's probably two weeks too late but um speaking of scatological humor if you can hear what sounds like fart sounds coming from my side of the record, I'm sitting on a chair that every time I move makes a sound that sounds like a fart. So I'm not just letting out uncontrollable gusts of wind. I am just uh, moving in a chair. So we're going <laughs> to move on from my fart sounds to a film that doesn't feature any farting. <laughs> what a perfect segue. But does feature one of my all-time favourite William Defoe performances. This is the sublime, the stunning At Eternity's Gate. And Defoe plays Vincent van Gogh in the movie and he approaches it kind of like a, a needy teenager desperate for Gauguin's attention uh, in parts of the film. And there's a real kind of innocence and naivete to the artist that Defoe really brings. And it's similarly experimental, but it's shot through sunbeams rather than shadows. So this is the day to the lighthouse's night, but it still has artistic madness at its heart. Really powerful and beautiful, especially if you're any kind of artist. This is one of the best films about art and the process of making art and the sacrifices and the consequences of really leaning into your uh, creative impulses. And The Lighthouse contains a direct reference to a painting, so I figured it would be fun to recommend a movie about a painter. And yeah, At Eternity's Gate gets so much right, uh, and I really, really recommend it. Wonderful, wonderful movie, and Defoe should have an entire mansion full of Oscars by this point, and he certainly deserved one for At Eternity's Gate, and probably one for The Lighthouse as well, but... Uh, Hollywood doesn't really work like that. So, yeah. Anyway, I recommend it. Dan, what's next from you? My next recommendation is a short film. Oh. And it's uh, Robert Eggers' short film. <laughs> hey! Heart nice. From 2008. Perfect. Uh, it was the first time him and cinematographer uh, Jaron Blaschke worked together. You can see a lot of aesthetic seeds in Telltale Heart that then flower beautifully in, in The Lighthouse, as well as the the sort of scatological content that we um, that we touched on <laughs> in The Lighthouse plays there as well. I think it it, it brackets uh, The Witch very well with uh, with The Lighthouse. Yeah, it's I mean it's a twenty minute adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe story it's got some quite bold process choices in it which I really liked like the way they do it um yeah it's really nice it's on YouTube you should find it excellent wonderful recommendation I uh will immediately watch that after finishing recording this episode uh very exciting next up from me is a film from 1932 the Lighthouse has both wellies firmly planted in German expressionism 
and Vampyr from 1932 is the one that reminds me most of Egger's stuff. I know he's making Nosferatu, but he could just as easily remake this because it's similarly surreal to the lighthouse with an evil heart pumping black ink around its twisted structure. It's a beautiful, beautiful film directed by master movie maker Carl Theodore Dreher. And sometimes the lighthouse feels like you're watching a nightmare play out and Vampire has that exact same feel. I feel like I've talked about it in the past, so I'll leave it there, but major recommendation for sure. Uh, Vampire, it is a masterpiece. All right, well, let's move on to stuff from the past couple of weeks. Dan, why don't you go first? First for me is a very mainstream film from 2023, which I'm going to be completely honest with you, Sam, is Soulless. It is a soulless <laughs> film. Excellent. But on a technical level... I cannot not recommend Extraction 2. Whoa, what the heck? I never expected to hear those words on the Arrow video podcast. Tell me yeah. more. Have you seen it, Sam? No, I haven't seen Extraction or Extraction okay. 2. What I'm going to do, instead of telling you about Extraction 2, is I'm going to mm -hmm. tell you about the process by which they wrote Extraction 2. And this okay. is fiction. <laughs> <laughs> what they did was they watched The Raid 2 and made notes. And then they wrote down what all the best bits of the Raid 2 were. And then they went, let's do that but bigger. And then that but bigger. And then that but bigger. But let's do it all in one like 15 minute shot. Whoa. And it's got like, you know, the cine literate among us will see the hidden edits where they happen. But some of the, some of the best modern action, particularly from the West, that I've seen in absolutely ages and one of the things that i love about it and one of the things that you don't see very often is background aftermath mm -hmm. so normally people get killed you move on the bodies that you know it's expensive to have extras lie around being dead bodies so you just fuck them off get them out of frame move on to the next room or at least swing an angle so you don't have to see them in this not only do you see the mountains of the dead piling up behind the behind Hemsworth, but it's full of little details that i absolutely love including like there's a bit about two-thirds of the way through this incredibly long sequence where they've managed to make it onto a train and they're being chased down by all these like motorcycling thugs and they're shooting at the motorcycles but instead of just having the motorcycles crash or even blow up you're seeing them flip and then you're seeing the people ejected through the trees from the bikes and then like broken against trees in the background and by that point there is already another fight happening in the foreground like it's so wow constant and deeply textured there's no story like it's just an excuse to get from fight one to fight two to fight three and it, like it does every now and then that all stops while they do some character work which is fine like everyone's doing their job like it, it's just I, I, I don't care but what i do care about is the incredible action it's written and directed by a stunt coordinator um i think his only other feature is the first um extraction which i didn't watch um, but I might watch now because oh my days, yeah. Some of the some of the action work in this is just fantastic. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Do I? I it sounds like I don't need to watch Extraction One before I watch Extraction Two. Is that correct? You know what? Maybe I would have cared about all the characters if I'd seen Extraction One. I haven't seen Extraction One. <laughs> I excellent. I didn't really care who lived or died as long as everyone who died died horribly and in a very like a deeply unnecessarily violent manner. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, it does sound up my street. It does sound like, you know, some of the, the martial arts stuff that I love. So, yeah. And, yeah, The Raid 2 is a brilliant movie. So, all right, I'll check it out. And one of the things that I adore about our podcast, Dan, is that we can go from something like Extraction 2 to something like my first recommendation from the past couple of weeks, which is La Combe Lucienne from 1974, which is, uh, <laughs> which is a really powerful Louis Mal movie about a, a French teenager who tries to join the French resistance in World War II. He's rejected and he ends up working with the Gestapo instead. And it's the kind of film that every time you check the runtime, there's an hour left, no matter how many times <laughs> you bring up the display, <laughs> which isn't to say it's boring. Um, it's just so much happens in a, a really unique way that you feel like more time has passed than, than it actually has. Um, kind of hard to explain. But yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant character study with the banality of evil as its central focus. And it stars a, a guy named Pierre Blaise. He was a, a, a non-actor who was brought in to be the lead, the central focus of this film. He plays uh, the titular character, Lucien. And holy shit, this is one of those... Uh, once-in-a-lifetime performances. It's just really stark, and he just lets everything play underneath the surface. There's so many moments in this film where he's reacting to, or he should be reacting to, stuff that's happening in front of him. But he's just gone so cold and so numb that you have to really, really examine his face for, for reactions. But they're there, deep, deep under the surface. Really, really, really impressive performance. And uh, unfortunately, it's one of his only performances because he died not too long after making this film in a, in a car accident with his friends. But he will live forever in this movie. Incredible performance, powerful film, really, really high recommendation if you haven't seen La Combe Lucienne. And I watched it on the Criterion channel. So it's available there and um, I'm sure elsewhere as well. It's in one of those Louis Mal collections um, that were put out on Blu-ray in the UK. So uh, very, very much recommend it. La Combe Lucienne from 1974. Dan, what's next from you? Well, I have mentioned it on the podcast before a long time ago, and I won't go into too much detail here because I just did a, a special um, episode uh, about it on Evolution of Horror, uh, which you can check out if you want. But I just want to restate how much I love the film Angst. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I did a hard dive into Home Invasion stuff, particularly some of the more extreme and obscure titles, and re-watching Angst again, especially like within the the milieu of all that other stuff it really does stand out it's, a, it's just an astonishing film on a technical level uh, and on an experiential level as well there's a, i think it's cult epics in the states blu-ray i think someone online said that it's available on one of the streaming services in the states as well you'll have to hunt for it if you're in the uk it's um I, as far as i know it's still not got a certification in this country but i yeah i can't recommend it highly enough it's absolutely amazing so beautiful in the way it's made as well great great movie we've got it on vhs here actually so um maybe that's oh, one lovely. that we'll do on a future vhs quest but this actually gives me an opportunity to correct the record because i did my home invasion evolution of horror episode on fright and uh when asked 
for my favourite home invasion movies at the end. I completely forgot that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a home invasion movie, and that's easily my favourite. I fucking love that film. I know that (laughs) you're a little bit down on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Dan, but every time I watch that movie, I just feel like I'm in heaven. Like, I bask in that film. It takes me back again to... Those films I watched over and over again as a kid, uh, just it's joyous every single time. So that is my favourite home invasion movie, Mike Munzer, um, who probably isn't listening to this, <laughs> but some of his audience will be. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's move on to my next recommendation. I've just realised I haven't done that yet. And that is another movie from 1974. And it is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Now, believe it or not, Dan, I had never seen this film until uh, the past couple of weeks. I've got this weird thing where I like to leave a gap in my film watching when it comes to like my favorite directors and Scorsese is up there with my all time favorites, obviously. And so I like there to be films in, in the filmography that I haven't seen yet. I like to save them. But for whatever reason, I decided to to finally watch this this film. And holy shit, I cannot believe how much I loved it. Like, on a first-time watch, it's up there with Raging Bull, with Goodfellas, with Taxi Driver, the films of his that I've loved all of my life, or most of my life in, in a couple of cases. But yeah, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore made me wish that he'd made more films like this, that he'd followed this path because it's so different to his other stuff, um, both stylistically and in terms of subject matter. It absolutely feels like a Cassavetes movie. You can so tell that he was trying to impress his mate, John, with it. It could be lifted from Cassavetes' filmography, way more in line with what he did. And I love Cassavetes' work, so I was genuinely thrilled and astonished by it. Brilliant performance by Ellen Bernstein at, at the heart of the film. But the, the kid that she's with is, is also great. It's about a mother who, who becomes a single mother and goes off to kind of find herself, stopping at a couple of towns along the way. Really emotionally powerful, funny, beautifully performed, beautifully shot. Bernstein won the Oscar for it and she was up against some pretty hardcore competition and uh, she was the only one that didn't show up to collect her Oscar. She was um, doing a play at the time, but I do wonder if uh, maybe there were some clashes with Scorsese because there's a sequence in here where Harvey Keitel goes a bit nuts, and uh, apparently she was very scared and very disturbed by that sequence. And in that, that scene, he shows her this scorpion bolo tie, and Keitel's character says it's representative of him and that, you know... If you you mess with him, you'll get the stinger style thing. And apparently Scorsese wore that bolo tie throughout the entirety of the shoot. So um, that gives you a sense of just how much cocaine uh, he was plowing through during that period. So I do wonder (laughs) if there was a falling out. But anyway, all of this is just behind the scenes gossip and chaos. Uh, And what I really want you to do is if you're like me and you haven't got to Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore because you feel like potentially it's an an anomaly in Scorsese's career, you're right. But what a wonderful, wonderful anomaly it is. Beautiful, brilliant, wonderful film. Dan, how do you feel about Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore? Well, I was thinking about this while you were talking about it. I saw it relatively young. 
Yes. And it didn't vibe with me. And I think that is because of its anomaly status and because I was younger and didn't, you know, hadn't lived as much life. And I'd be interested to revisit it and see how I feel about it now as a as a married adult. You know, I feel like you can have a different favourite Scorsese for every bit of your life, every stage yeah. of your life. So maybe you've maybe you've entered the Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore bit of your life. Sincerely, when I was watching this, I had that exact thought. I said to myself, thank goodness I did wait to watch this. Because I'm, if I'd have seen it when I was in my real kind of Scorsese De Niro obsession stage when I was a teenager, I yeah. wouldn't have gotten a lot of the references that are in this film. There's um, some some Serkian stuff in here. There's uh, like the Wizard of Oz style stuff, um, but also the Cassavetti stuff, which I hadn't seen at that point as a teenager. And... It's got his similar... It's it's him kind of still working out how he references the films that he grew up on. And there's some really kind of direct references, like the film opens with a sequence on a soundstage that's very obviously a soundstage, like those movies of the 30s and, and, and some in the 40s. And apparently the studio wanted him to cut that sequence. And you can see exactly where they would have want him to open the film. But it's an early sign of his passion in that he said that if you cut that sequence, I'll take my name off the movie. So all that kind of stuff and reading around the film, really, really fascinating and uh, vibrant and exciting period in his career. And sandwiched between Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, to me, it's as exciting as either of those two films. Watching it now like you say as an adult with a bit more life behind me um yeah love it love it love it all right what's next from you dan there's nothing because we've done both well actually i do i do have another one that i watched in the last couple of weeks and i completely forgot about until we were talking about films we were glad we didn't see when we were younger uh, oh please i waited for ages to to watch for the first time Uh, i saw uh return to oz for the first time (laughs) Whoa! Oh God, I'm I'm I'd really never, interested in this. I'd never seen it. I'd never because you seen hate it. you hate stuff like this. Like you you hate never ending story. Never ending story is mawkish and clunky, and the special effects aren't great. This is nonsensical and quite bad in places. But I. <laughs> fucking loved it. The wheelies are pretty rubbish. I wish that those had been their faces, not hats. Uh, yeah, they smack of a performance troupe that was found by the director, yep. and they're yep. just like plonked into the movie wholesale. The 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 sort of the main one with the very thinning red hair smacks of someone who's gotten into adulthood as a street performer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense. It tur- like it turns on a thing that we were not told about, so that's <laughs> not great structurally. Oh my god, it feels like. It, you could just put a color filter over it and it's a, like bits of it are a Tim Burton movie like that's that was quite astonishing to me how much is borrowed to the extent that I didn't realize Jack Skellington used to be orange under all that white face paint the puppeteering in it is absolutely amazing like the mechanical uh, chicken is mind-blowing I was right. absolutely transfixed those eyelids Sam on that chicken <laughs> just just breathtaking the stop motion for the rock people for the rock trolls yeah yeah yeah. was breathtaking particularly in the close-up shots that are just like a slate face when the troll king is kind of off camera it's just one of his guards coming and reporting on uh 
on Alice. Also, if they'd had any uh, balls at all, it would have ended like Sucker Punch. <laughs> with right. being lobotomized. Another one of your favourite movies. <laughs> Another one of my favourite films. Another one of my favourite <laughs> bad films. This is one that I grew up with, and this is one actually that, that's almost in the 100 Club. I did watch it over and over again. I, I think I was a big fan of TikTok. TikTok's great. You know how the guy inside TikTok was contorted to be able to walk him around. He was on his feet, but he was facing backwards, hugging his own thighs with his head between his legs. <laughs> I did not know that, Which means. Actually. And he could see out kind of a bit through the groin. Wow. <laughs> like that, I had no idea. Knowing that ahead of time, watching him go upstairs. <laughs> yes. God. Yeah, God, absolutely. But yeah, and another reason I revisited this and loved it so much is it was one of my kind of earliest exposures to horror. Um, believe it or not, I was absolutely terrified of the wheelies. I was also, there's a bit involving severed heads that just really, really oh, freaked yeah, me out. Oh, yeah, so good. Um, yeah, no, great, great, great movie. Another one of those where it's like, how can this possibly be good? It's a sequel to The Wizard of Oz, kind of similar to Psycho 2. Um, but they've got some weird stuff in common, I think. Weird, weird energy and darkness and um, just technical proficiency uh, in, yeah. in both of those sequels. So, yeah, yeah, great. I'm glad we got onto that. But there's more from you to come in... Extra features, extra features, extra, extra features. features. Extra features, extra features. Dan, you've got a very exciting extra feature for us. What have you got? Yeah, I made my lovely dear friend Tracy Loder talk to me about her experience working with Robert Eggers, specifically on The Lighthouse, although we do touch on The Witch as well. Yeah, I spoke to her over Zoom. Here is that. I'm joined now by one of my very favourite people in the whole world, um, uh, Tracy Loder, who I met on... Uh, and have worked with many times since. Um, Tracy, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and you are my favorite human. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Thank you for taking time for this. Um, I remember when you were, I was first told about you. I was sort of recommended you um, for as a collaborator on Possessor. And one of the one of the first things they mentioned, of course, was um, was your work with Robert. Um, not that your incredibly illustrious uh, career uh, <laughs> wasn't equally as impressive throughout. Um, how did you first get involved with working with Robert? Oh, Robert, he's one of my favorite directors and it actually almost didn't happen. Um, the Witch was shooting in North Bay, which is about four hours north of Toronto. And he was interviewing in Toronto and the office had given me the wrong phone number of the location we were to meet. And Robert didn't call me and he didn't know, he didn't know what to say to me to get me there because he didn't really know where he was because he's not from here. And I was just so frustrated and I was just like, do you know what? Sorry, have a great shoot. I'm sorry, this didn't work out. And he was like, no, I want to meet you. And he goes, I'm going to set up an interview tomorrow and we're going to meet. And we met and we talked for like, God, I think it was like two hours, an hour and a half, two hours. Um, just about a lot of different stuff and we really hit it off and he's just he's such a brilliant man like a brilliant director that's very cool i'm glad it worked out um yeah, me too so obviously you did the witch with him first as makeup designer um and then uh presumably he called you and told you he had another, another project coming or how did he find out about um lighthouse um the lighthouse actually he it was actually a producer that called me so 
I'm assuming that Robert, I think Robert asked for me and then the producer called me to see if I was available. And I was actually on a film and they were pushing a week. So it gave me five days to get to Halifax. So it, it was a close thing, but it did work out. Wait, so you fit it in before the other project? Um, after. Oh, after. Okay. Oh, I see. They were pushing Lighthouse. I get you. Yeah. That's amazing. So what kind of prep do you do for a project like this? Like, it's got such a distinct look. Oh, my God. Robert is so thorough with his lookbooks and his Bible. Like, every show has a Bible, and it covers every single department, every single actor. The detail is so laid out um, for you. So Robert and I had a Zoom meeting. And then we had questions about, like, of course, Willem's beard and lightening it or adding to it, trying different things. So I was prepping from Toronto and sending him photos and videos until I could get out there. And then the day I landed, we did camera tests. Wow. So that's that's a, that's a hard turnaround. It was, but it's only because I was on a show, so I couldn't leave any earlier. Yeah, I mean, you do this to yourself a lot. You are very in demand. And you no respect for your own rest. No, we just did this actually in the fall. <laughs> um, so what, I mean, you were filming out on location for the whole thing. So what was that like being out there and having to combat the real elements for oh this God. for this look? The weather in the lighthouse um, was real. Um, they had wind machines and rain machines and all that on standby, but I honestly don't know. I don't think we ever used them. It was rocky, muddy, windy. The first day, I think we lost our lunch tent into the ocean. <laughs> um, you had to change your weather gear at lunch. Like you would have mud on the inside of your rain gear. And I don't even know how it got there. And we had to take um, ATVs or walk um, through the rocks to get to where the lighthouse was that they built. Um, it was honestly the most physically demanding show I think I've ever done. That's absolutely crazy because obviously like someone who doesn't necessarily know the craft may think, oh, well, they you want them to look windswept and they're out there getting swept by the wind. That makes your job easier. But of course, you have to keep them looking exactly the right amount of windswept and consistent throughout. Um, oh, exactly. And the rain and the it's and we were shooting in black and white and in black and white normally they shoot with the red filter to have like brighter skies and stuff like that but we were shooting with a blue filter to make everything more dreary and dark and so learning it was a learning curve for me with color on what would read and what wouldn't read was it your first black and white project um, not my first black and white project, but my first black and white with a blue filter. Understood. Yeah. So Jaron, the DOP, he was so, he gave me so much information um, to help me. And then I also got, um, it was also the lenses that they were using. And we were using really old cameras, like from the 30s. And um, so to mimic the gel and the filters kind of, he gave me a gel that was would similarly mimic it. And so I had it on my lights um, in the makeup trailer. And then it was so dark that I had to turn them on and off just to check. And then mm -hmm. for touch on set, I had a flashlight that I put the gel in so I could um, light them to see if I needed to change anything. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. And did you like? Did you have like video village and stuff out there, or was it too too barren for that? Um, we did have video village. It was we had a, t- a tent if it would stay there. <laughs> um, I remember watching it one day, and I had two tents together, and I was standing right behind Robert, and someone pushed the tent to knock the water off, and it came right down on me. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was it was wet. <laughs> I got stuck in the mud. I think twice. Robert had to help me once. And I think Rob Codrell, our first AD, helped me another time. Lovely Rob, who obviously we worked with on Possessor and Infinity Pool as well and stuff. Yes, our good friend. Um, so what was the like, what was the biggest challenge of it all? Like either an individual moment or just a, a specific thing throughout? Mm, so long ago. I was trying to recall it's it's funny that after a while um only the good memories stick <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's always the way with filmmaking it is and even though the lighthouse was such a great experience i mean i would do anything for robert and um it's i think it's just the weather just dealing with the weather and getting the makeup to hold up and um like it's it's only two actors so you think well that's easy it's just two actors but you know, they have different call times. You also have their doubles. You have their stunt doubles. Um, we had the mermaid, which I didn't have a lot to do with the mermaid on this one. Um, whereas on the witch, I oversaw prosthetics as well for Francois of Mindwarp. And you and showed if, some stuff in studio at the end as well. We did. Well, if the sun came out, we would go. We had sun cover instead of rain cover. So if yeah. the sun came out, we had a small set on location, and then we went to studio at the end. And was the was the studio uh, like an interior, or was it just like specific bits, like a sort of a pickup studio? Um, it was interiors, so like oh, all nice. inside the lighthouse. Um, we had a lighthouse. I think it was a dining area, and the porch, and something else on location and then we also had that same set in the studio but then we had the the interior of the stairs that he falls down um we had the beds the bedroom upstairs nice Uh, yeah uh is there any particularly unusual reference you can tell us about for any of the looks I'm certain there is. And the way you asked that, I must have told you something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think. I mean, with Robert, the only real thing that I kind of took his design and changed was William's tattoos that we worked on a lot. Tell me about those. Uh, William's tattoos were um, of turn of the century. So a lot of them were stick and poke. And he had, um, I think it was a three-mast ship on his chest. And he had a mermaid that has actually grown on me. On his arm, he had initials that were actually his grandsons on his arm. And I think he had one other one. And how did you choose those? And how did you sell them to Robert? Um, In his lookbook, he had, like, the Bible. Um, He wanted the ship. And the other ones he was open to, um, he just wanted stuff that looked authentic. So I work with a tattoo artist that um, does the artwork for all my tattoos. And then I make them and apply them. And so we only had to do like maybe two or three versions. 
because the first time he was making them to kind of more 40s and not of the turn of the century. So he really got the stick and poke artwork down um, from doing Robert's form. How long was the shoot? Um, the shoot was, I'm going to say two and a half months. I know we went two weeks over. So it was like two months or two and a half months, something like that. That's a respectable length of time for an indie film. It is. It really is. And I mean, his films are always so um, creative and challenging. And he he knows what he wants. And no one does period horror like him. Um, so it's yeah, always gorgeous. an honor to work with him and collaborate with him on projects. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Tracy. That is a lovely sentiment to leave it on. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, my God. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent stuff. I love it. So we've had quotes from Robert Eggers read aloud and we've had that beautiful behind the scenes detail there. You get a lot from the Arrow Video podcast. And um, yeah, that's it. We're going to finish on that. Uh, Dan, how can people follow you? On Twitter and Instagram, I am at 13fingerfx. That's FX at the end there. All right. And I am... Uh, patreon.com forward slash VHS quest where Shay and I go through four VHS releases every week uh, for four dollars a month so a dollar a week for tons of recommendations and we've got a huge back catalogue by this point over uh, 160 movies I think we're at by now yeah head on over to patreon.com forward slash VHS quest for all sorts of movie talk All right, well, uh, until next time, we don't know what we're doing next time yet, do we, Dan? We haven't organised that far ahead. Haven't Um, got that far. But yeah, I'm sure it'll be something good because we've got a big old stack of cool stuff. Actually, maybe if Bruce Lee... Do you want to do a Bruce Lee film? Yeah, if that's arrived by that point, which it should have. I got um, mine today. Should we do... Oh, you got yours? Okay, mine should be arriving this week then. Um, Why don't we do a double bill based on that incredible Bruce Lee box set? Starting with, what will your choice be? Uh, I'll go for disc one, Big Boss. Big Boss, amazing movie. And I'm going to go for Way of the Dragon, why not? And maybe we'll sneak in some Enter the Dragon talk as well. But yeah, a Bruce Lee (laughs) double bill over the next month. So look forward to that. But until then, thank you so much for listening. And we promise to be more professional next time. Next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.